When I was in sixth grade, um, I spent my first week away from home at summer camp. Perhaps those of you who have been to summer camp and know what that first week away from home is like. Uh, so I was experiencing some of that. And every morning after all the cabins gathered for, I don't know if they still do this, but anyway, it, they all gathered for roll call and we all reported that we were present and accounted for and we had the Pledge of Allegiance. After that, one of the camp staff would come forward and would do something that we all really looked forward to. They would distribute the mail. Um, of course, this was a time when there weren't cell phones and you know, parents couldn't check in with their kids with a text message or whatever. Um, so, so mail was important. Sometimes a parent would uh, send a letter to help their child not feel so homesick. Maybe they anticipated that um, their child, first time away from home, needs some encouragement, so they'd send a letter. Maybe an older sibling would send a letter and let them know how, fun, how much fun they were having without them. I don't know, um, but they would, you know, people would send different letters. And on occasion, uh, campers would get care packages from home. Usually these care packages were full of treats and made the campers feel really special. So whenever it came time to distribute the mail in the morning, we all paid really close attention and we listened carefully to see if our name might be called. About the middle of the week when the camp staff was handing out the mail one morning, my name was called. And I was so excited. I was beaming. Wow, I am special. Someone thought about me. And so I went to, to pick up my letter, but instead of handing me a letter, the camp staff handed me a shoebox-sized package. And as I received this shoebox-sized package, pretty much everyone could guess that it didn't contain shoes, right? <laughs> like it, it had, it was, I, I felt it was kind of heavy, and I shook it a little bit, kind of like you do with your Christmas presents as a kid. Shook it a little bit, and I could tell that it was full of small items, and I held this box tightly, uh, and as soon as I could, I took it back to my cabin where I opened it, and I found, sure enough, my mom had sent me all of these wonderful treats, this wonderful care package, and, and I felt really special. Now, my parents growing up, they taught us, my brother and I, to share. They taught us to do that. And at this point in my life, I believed in sharing. If you had asked me, is sharing one of your values, I would have said, absolutely. It's a really important thing. I think everyone should share. But when I opened that box and saw all the candy, I had no intentions of sharing it. Um, in that box was enough candy for the entire cabin, a dozen of us. We, we all could have had plenty and enjoyed it. But instead of sharing the wealth and just passing it out and enjoying it myself and giving it to my, my friends there in, in the cabin, I greedily stashed it away until I could eat it later all by myself. Later on, after a fun day of activities, we went back to our cabin and I was looking forward to, to getting the box, but I, when I went to get the box, I found that it had been raided by the campers from another cabin. And it's kind of funny now, but I cried. I was so sad. I was like, oh, I miss it. Here I could have, and I put it away, and I didn't have any. Now, looking back, I realized a really important lesson. By not sharing when I had the chance to share, I not only missed out on enjoying this wonderful thing that, um, that my mom had given me, enjoying all this candy, 
but also my entire cabin missed out on it too. They could have benefited from it also. Yeah. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we've been given the sweet message of Jesus in abundance, enough for everyone, enough to share with the world. But if we neglect to share what we've been given, it's not just others who miss out on it, on what we have to give. We risk also on missing out on knowing Jesus' love for ourselves. That's the way it works. By sharing it, we experience it. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a teaching that we find several places throughout the Bible. The one that we're going to focus on is is found in the New Testament. Uh, We're going to look at this teaching because it shows us how to enjoy the sweet spiritual experience of knowing Jesus for ourselves. And we do this by sharing what God has given to us. So the title of the message is love your neighbor. And before we get into the Bible, I'd like to pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to know how to love. This is a, this is a deep value, and yet we, we cannot do this on our own. And so I pray that we would recognize that for one, and that we would also receive from you the words of life that empower us to live the lives of love that you've created us for, that we long to live deep down in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So please turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 to get started off with. Uh, If you want to use the Pew Bible, that's the page number, it's 1171. And uh, just as you're going there, I want to make an observation that throughout history, God has had people who were special to him. Now, of course, God loves everyone, but he's always had a special people, and we see that throughout history. We see this really coming out, well, several places, but I'm just going to make just a few observations here. After leading Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to a place called Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, as you may know, God gave Moses his words. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He, exp- he gave them his will for his people. This is how to live. He gave them his laws so that they might know him. This is how to worship, so that they might have a relationship with God. And these words, these messages that were given to Moses and given to the people of Israel, they indicated that Israel was God's special people. Your chosen people, your special people. And they knew that because God communicated with them. We see this throughout history. God, God indicates this specialness by communicating with his people. But Israel, they misunderstood what it meant to be God's special people. It did not mean, being God's special people does not mean that we are better than anyone else. And Israel missed that. They misunderstood it. They thought that being God's special people meant that they were better But it doesn't. Being God's special people means that God has chosen people to share what he has given to them. That's what it means to be his special people. Sadly, the Jewish nation failed to share what God had given to them, and as a result, they themselves missed out. You can read about it throughout the Old Testament. They missed out on knowing Jesus for themselves. Now, by the time of the New Testament, the Christians in Galatia, here in the book of Galatians that we read about, The Christians in this region of Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey, for those who are interested, um, these Christians, they were in a similar place as the Jewish nation had been in the Old Testament. 
The Apostle Paul had given them this privilege of knowing Jesus. He preached the gospel. He told them about Jesus, the good news of salvation, that Jesus is able to redeem them and save them completely. They had the privilege of knowing that, and they accepted it. But just like the nation of Israel, these Gentile converts were in danger of hoarding what they had been given and missing out on the gift themselves. So in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, Paul tells them what to do, and he does it by summarizing the entire message of the Bible in one simple statement. Be looking for that. Starting with verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. That's what God's laws are for, for freedom. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Paul says in verse 13 that we were called to be free, he knows how prone we are to use truth for selfish purposes. We're prone to doing that. All of us are prone to doing that. Read the Bible and say, how can I have this benefit me? (laughs) Yes, Jesus frees us from our failing efforts to save ourselves. Praise God. Jesus does that. He saves us. And he doesn't need us to give him a hand in doing it. He does it entirely on his own. But just because we are free from working for our salvation in Christ, Paul is saying that this does not mean that it's about living to please ourselves. He says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Instead, use it to serve others. And to back up his argument, he quotes a teaching from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It's actually Leviticus chapter uh, 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18. And and so he uses this, this quote, and he makes this outlandish statement. He says that the entire law of God, in other words, everything that God commands us to do is fulfilled in this one statement. Boil it all down. Package it up. This is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Like the Bible's a big, thick book, and he's boiling it all down to this one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Although this statement is wonderfully simple, some may question, maybe it's a little too simple. I mean, what about loving God, Paul? How could he say that the whole thing comes down to loving your neighbor? Wouldn't If it was me, I would have guessed he would have said, it all comes down to loving God. Significantly, Paul isn't the only one who has made this observation, that it all comes down to this one thing. In Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, in the famous Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches, He's wrapping things up, and and Jesus himself here says these words, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, we look at this, and we call this the golden rule, right? And it basically states, or restates, the command in Leviticus 19.18, to love others as you want to be loved. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then Jesus says this. this. This statement 
sums up the law and the prophets. So Jesus himself is saying the same thing, basically, that Paul is saying in Galatians 5.14. That everything in the Bible can be summed up in this one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. By commanding us to love others, Jesus in no way diminishes the importance of loving God. In fact, unless we love God, we really don't even know what it means to love others. Without God, we're on our own to determine what love is. Like, how do we love ourselves? Apart from God, answering that question really comes down to what pleases us, what seems good to us. And the question is, have you ever been wrong? Have you ever thought to yourself, wow, it would be really great if I could just eat a little more and then suffer the consequences? Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought, wow, I, should, I would be really happy if I could go and make a bunch of purchases that aren't really going to benefit me later and then I'm out of money and, and, and I'm wishing that I hadn't done that? Have you ever done something like that? Have you ever thought, you know, I don't have any responsibilities tomorrow. Maybe I'll just stay up all night so I can feel terrible the next day. Like sometimes our ideas of loving ourselves aren't so good. But even when we make choices that are good, this is nothing compared to what we really need as far as love is concerned. And we're not able to provide that on our own. But when we give ourselves to loving God, then we give God the job of loving us. And who can love us better than God? Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose a small child with loving, capable parents comes to the place in his life where he decides that he does not want his parents taking care of him anymore. Now he's going to prepare his meals, he's going to wash his clothes, whatever money he needs for his expenses, he's going to go out and earn it on his own. How well would that go for this small child? Like, obviously, obviously, children need their parents to take care of them. And children do best when they have parents who love them and care for them and show them love even when they don't deserve it. That's, that's where children thrive. When it's undeserved love, children just thrive on that. So when the Bible says for us to love our neighbors as we would love ourselves— We don't know how to love ourselves unless God shows us. Unless God is the one taking care of us, we can't thrive. We don't even know what love is. And that is what the first four commandments are all about in the Ten Commandments. We love God by how? By putting him first. We love God by not turning to idols, but by turning to him when we're empty and in need. We love God by respecting his name, respecting his character, honoring him for who he is. We love God by resting from our works and allowing him to create what we lack. By loving God, we let him show what love really is. We get to experience that love that our heart desires, that that love that, that our heart longs for. The command to love others is a wonderful thing because it separates followers of Jesus from people who are merely religious. You don't need God to be religious. You can pray without God. You can read the Bible without God. You can worship without God. You can come, attend, attend church. I can't truly worship, but 
You can come and sing the songs and go through the motions without God. You can perform any other religious practice entirely on your own. But the Bible tells us to do something that we cannot do on our own. Love others as God loves others without needing anything in return. It's describing a spiritual experience that's only possible when God is at work in our lives. It's only something that we can pass on. It's only something that we can receive from him. We receive it from him when we love him. He blesses us with his love, and then we, we get the chance to pass that on. We can't do it on our own. To help us understand what this looks like to love a neighbor, Jesus told a story specifically answering this question. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. In this story, a man gets robbed, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. Two religious leaders come along, and they pass him by. They leave him right there, wallowing in his blood. And then Jesus says, a man from a place called Samaria comes along the road. Now, this is significant. Jesus tells us where he is from because Samaritans and Jews had this long history of hating each other. And most likely, the man that was dying on the side of the road was a Jew. So this Samaritan comes along, but this Samaritan doesn't see an enemy lying on the ground. This Samaritan sees need. He sees a person in need, someone who needs help. And he decides to love his neighbor by giving what he has to meet the man's need. This is what the Bible says in Luke chapter 10, verse 34. This is what the Samaritan did. He went to him, which is really significant. He came close. He looked. He assessed the situation. He took an inventory as to what the man's need was. And he sees that he is wounded, so he bandages his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. Wine would have been something to disinfect the wound. Oil would have been something to help soothe the pain of the wound. He gives what he has to help this man. Then he puts the man on his own donkey, Chances are this man, this Samaritan, was riding on that donkey prior to meeting the man in need. But instead of continuing his journey riding on the donkey in luxury, so to speak, he puts the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then the story goes on, he proceeded to pay the man's expenses until the man had fully recovered. Notice that the text does not say that the Samaritan came close to the man and gave him advice about not traveling alone on this dangerous road. Notice that it doesn't say that. Would that have been appropriate? It wouldn't have been relevant, but it was good advice, right? There's robbers in these hills. It's better to not travel this road. You should take someone with you next time. But he doesn't do that. The Samaritan doesn't kneel down and open the five books of Moses and begin to give him a Bible study on the love of God. He doesn't do that. Had the Samaritan done this, it might have looked like love, but it wouldn't have been love. Why? Because the man did not need that. Not at that moment. The Samaritan loved his neighbor because he saw the man's needs he took what he had been given and he met the man's needs with what he had been given. This is the definition of evangelism. 
It's meeting people's needs. That's what evangelism is all about. Sometimes we talk about evangelism like, oh man, can we not talk about evangelism? We don't, sometimes we, we see it as a burden. We see it as some kind of terrible experience where we're, we're guilted with this horrible responsibility of convincing people against their will so they'll come and join our church. Evangelism is meeting people's needs. It's meeting people's needs with the riches that God has given to us. We use what we have to meet people's needs. That's evangelism. I feel like I'm repeating myself. <laughs> I need, should I say that again? Evangelism <laughs> is meeting people's needs. Okay, all right. Um, sometimes when it comes to sharing our faith, sometimes when we can be talking to someone or see an opportunity to, to share our faith with someone and kind of see this opportunity, sometimes we can be like fire hoses. Where someone says, what, what is, why do you keep the Sabbath? Oh, you want to know? <laughs> I'm going to tell you everything that I can possibly think of about why I keep, here are all the verses. Here's some things to read. Like, we'll give them all this stuff. And if that's what they're wanting, great. If that's what they're needing, great. But if that's not what they need, let's give them what they need. Let's give them a little bit at a time if that's where they're at. Let's not overwhelm them. Sometimes we do these things so that we can feel better ourselves. So we can say, yeah, I told that guy about the Sabbath. Now, now he knows. Now he's informed because I gave it all to him. And now he doesn't want to see me anymore. This is not evangelism. Evangelism is coming close to people and seeing what they actually need and providing that for him. Do you think this, this, this Jewish man that was battered and beaten on the side of the road, do you think he was grateful that this Samaritan came along and poured oil and wine on his wounds? Yes, because that's what the man needed. Was he grateful that the man was willing to give up his donkey so that he could put the, the broken, injured man on that donkey and take him to the inn and pay for him, something that he couldn't have done for himself? Yes, he was grateful for that. Why? Because that was his need. And when we provide from the wealth that God has given to us for the needs of others, chances are they are going to say, thank you. That's what I needed. I just needed someone to listen to me. I just needed someone to give me some hope. I just needed someone to clearly show me from the Bible what I was asking for so that I could know something, is, so that I could know truth. All of these are examples of needs, but sometimes we just do what we feel like we need to do, and we miss the point. This man came close first. He went to him. He listened to him, and he met his needs. This is what evangelism is. It's coming close to people. It's listening to them. It's meeting their needs. Now, I would imagine that if any one of us saw someone who was battered and beaten like this man on the side of the road, we would stop and we would help. I'm sure we would, but the reality is we are surrounded with people who are battered and beaten on the inside, all around us. People have been wounded by life, by their choices, people who are hurt emotionally, people who are broken spiritually. And as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we know a God who is able to heal, broken, wounded, people. We have something really special. We have something really precious that other people need. 
We know a God who is so good he can make the worst person good. We know a God who understands our weaknesses, who does not come to condemn us, but rather perfects his strength in our weaknesses. And even though bad things happen on this earth, our God is so powerful that he can turn bad circumstances into something that is good. He knows the future, and he is present with us today. He's leading us. But even if we choose to ultimately reject him, he is just. And he's, he's, he, he's going to allow us to experience the consequences of our choices, but he's not going to torture us in the flames of hell forever. We don't have a God that's like that. That's a God that you can trust. And if you choose to trust this God, he's a God that can supply all your needs. If you know this God, then you need to share this God with other people. Not so that we can have a full, I mean, we have a full church, but not, not so that we can pack these churches, you know, and have multiple church, mega church. Not for that purpose. That's great, but it's not for that purpose We need to share Jesus with others. We need to share this God with others so that we don't miss out on him ourselves. During the Holocaust, a young Jewish man was put on a railroad car along with many other Jews, and they were sent to Auschwitz. Railroad car that looks like this. I think this is actually in front of Auschwitz, if I'm not mistaken. These cars had no food, no water, no comforts. They, they had no blankets to keep those who were crowded inside of them warm as the cold winter wind whipped through the slats, these thin slats in these cars. As night fell, the train cars were left standing on the tracks and those inside of them began to feel the icy cold settle on top of them. Looking around, the young Jewish man saw an elderly man in in the group there. And he recognized him as a man from his hometown. He he knew this this man was, was a good man. He remembered him from his hometown as being kind. But now as he looked upon this elderly man, this man was terrified and he was shivering cold. So this young man decided to go up to this elderly man and he wrapped his arms around this elderly man. And he started to rub this man to keep him warm. He rubbed his face, he rubbed his neck, he rubbed his arms and his hands and his legs, and he just kept doing that. And he he started talking to the elderly man, saying, come on, you've got to hold on. We've got to make it through the night, and I'm here with you. And he kept rubbing him and passing his warmth on to this cold, shivering man. All night long, he, he kept rubbing the man, keeping him warm. And finally, the sun began to come up, and as the warm rays of the sun began to hit this car and began to warm up the air inside of, the, inside of this, this railroad car, the young man looked at, at his elderly friend, and he saw that he was still alive. He was so happy. And then he began, he was so preoccupied with keeping this man warm as best as he could. He, he didn't know what was going on. He really wasn't paying attention to everyone else. He looked around and he saw that there was just this cold silence in the car and that everyone else in that car had frozen to death. Only him 
and this elderly man were still alive. The elderly man survived because he had someone that was keeping him warm. And the young man survived because he was keeping someone warm. When Galatians 5.14 says, love your neighbor. This is, the whole, this is the fulfillment of all the law. This is what it's all about. This is God's will. Love your neighbor as yourself. It is not giving us an optional command. You can be a Christian. You can have a relationship with God. And if you have time, love your neighbor. No, no, no. This is what it means to experience the spiritual life. This is it. Love your neighbor as yourself. God has given himself to us. He has given us his book. He's given us the Bible where he tells us about Jesus. He tells us about truth. He tells us about who we are, that we are beloved children of God. He tells us that he saves us and that he has this incredible plan for us. He has given us this wealth, not so that we could hoard it and stash it away. He's given us this, this special privilege, so that we can share it with others. May God open our eyes to see the needs in others, to see the brokenness in others. May God open our ears to hear the cry of pain that may not be expressed, but it's down there behind that smile, behind the I'm okay facade. May God open our senses to realize that there are broken, hurting people all around us. May we be able to see what their needs really are. May we come close to those around us. May we take the time to listen. I'm speaking to myself just as much as anyone else this morning. May we take the time to care to notice what people need. And may we grow in that sweet experience of knowing Jesus more and more as we love our neighbors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, thank you for showing us what love really is. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us and showing us grace though we don't deserve it. God, may we pass on these riches in real, relevant meaningful, tangible ways to those around us. I pray that you'd open my eyes. Pray that you'd open the eyes of my friends and my family here. May we see the need in others, and may we pass on faithfully what you've given to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.